Hey everyone, welcome to the seventh episode of the Liam McCollum Show. Today I have a very special guest on. It's my cousin. Uh, you want to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Don. <laughs> Don Corcoran. Well, well, Don, do you wanna do you wanna maybe introduce yourself with your background and a little bit about your journey and what you're going through right now? Oh, all that stuff. Yes. <laughs> well, I think a proper introduction would, if I if I'm gonna, I'm a married man. Very happily married. My wife, Cassidy, is a dream. And uh, we have three kids. We have uh, my oldest, Gideon, is nine. Tristan is eight. And Josiah is five. They all have warrior names. And um, that's my family. And, you know, that's the most important thing to me. So I guess one of the things we'll probably get into is family and life. And and um, I am uh, currently on a cancer journey. And so... That is uh, that is where we are now, 18 months into MDS, myodysplastic syndrome, which is a blood cancer, which I may have pronounced a little off. My wife is better at the pronunciations of all of the terms, but, um, but I do have it. Um, I'm a mutant. I have a mutant gene. And so we're, uh, we just finished our 19th round of chemo. So when I do chemotherapy, I do seven days on three weeks off so the last 18 months have been full i've had four bone marrow biopsies and you know had a port put in had a blood transfusion and all sorts of other little things so a couple hundred doctor appointments (laughs) and um a very full uh 18 months and so that's uh the journey we're on now is is you know is walking through i'm on life extension so my chemotherapy is to keep me alive so when people ask, I guess I tell them it's like a car that's got bald tires on it and it's almost winter, but you want to run those tires <laughs> until and you want to wait till as long as you can before you put those winter tires on. But um, so we're kind of in that mode of survival, <laughs> of just going week to week, checking my numbers. And so my chemotherapy is not life saving, it's life preserving so i guess yeah. you know basic is to keep me alive until transplant and transplant would be the possible cure and um and that has its own inherent dangers and that's why they've they're kind of pushing it back mm-hmm. as far as possible so um that's a little introduction to to where we are and kind of what's happening and do you want to do you want to say a little bit, bit about your last um time visiting seattle and your numbers and everything like that. Yeah, I can give a little bit of that. Again, my wife is, every time I start to tell people, she corrects. <laughs> so I'm kind of, I kind of get a general, like I have an understanding of what's happening in my body. But um, the general overview is is um, my platelets are really low. So I have issues with red blood cells and white blood cells that we're always monitoring and neutrophils. And there's all these different numbers. For whatever reason, I just kind of zone in on the platelets, <laughs> and um, those ones make the most sense to me because the average person has, I think, it's one hundred fifty thousand to four hundred fifty thousand platelets, mm-hmm. um, and I believe seventy five thousand. Anything under that's critical. It's either seventy five thousand or fifty thousand, but um, I believe it's seventy five thousand under that is critical. And my my current numbers are the last time we were tested was thirteen thousand before my last round of chemo. And then those numbers raised up to 15,000. And uh, if they drop under 10,000, we'll look for a transplant because there's a lot of complications that happens. If it drops under 10,000, then they want to do blood transfusions. And since I'm getting a stem cell replacement, um, and that's, you know, we're dealing with blood cancer. They don't want different transfusions of different bloods and then try to have a transplant because it's problematic. Mm-hmm. So if I drop low into the 10,000s, they'll just want to go ahead and and uh, cut me <laughs> or whatever. I don't think they even cut me. I think it's it's a different, I like the dramatic aspect of saying cut me, but um, but it is a dangerous, you know, procedure. People die in it. So, of course, there's um, a chemotherapy that's intensive and radiation right before and they basically you know rid your body of all of the things and they replace them so all of the things is a very uh, technical scientific term right and you, <laughs> and you you were saying that the chemo has actually you've been doing pretty well on it you haven't had a lot of side effects or anything like that yeah i've been really 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 lucky 
Um, I think um, God has been good to me for sure. We we take a, you know, we bring a lot, you know, to our treatments as far as what we do as a family. And, and so I have a lot of things that I do that I think are very helpful, how we eat, you know, what we put in our body, what we put on our body, you know, all those controlled things, you know, um, sleep, no, you know, keep stress, anxiety, worry, like out, <laughs> not, we, we stay far away from those things. Um, they come up sometimes, but I think mental health, the way you think about, you know, where you're, you're at, um, is very important. But, um, you know, we do a lot of things to uh, keep healthy. And I think they've, after 19 rounds, you know, we've been, uh, what's that, 130 some, you know, infusions. And I feel fantastic. Mm -hmm. So um, my numbers. Well, thank you. That's what my wife says. (laughs) Um, She didn't say that. I wish she did. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. But anyways, um, no, it's, it's, um. I think there's a lot that goes into to the health aspect of it. Um, some things are in your control, some are not. So we can the things we can control, we do, and and so uh, and then we just live, you know, in as much joy as possible. We talk about the the tightrope because you're really on a tightrope without a net. So you know, I've had three friends in the last eighteen months that on the cancer journey that died. And so it can happen pretty sudden where, you know, someone's doing, you know, well in their treatment and then they get sick and, you know, then sometimes it's, you know, pneumonia or different things that will take them. And sometimes it happens pretty rapidly. So you, you're well aware that even as you're doing treatments and things are going well, that you're constantly, constantly reminded about people that, you know, that are, you know, mm-hmm. passing and, and so that's a very real aspect of the cancer journey is is you're walking the the tightrope of death, you know. Yeah. Uh, but we we have joy in it, and so we um, you know, we we say it, we dance the tightrope. And to get more into that conversation, uh, can you just say a little bit about what you've been doing with your podcast and storytelling and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was diagnosed, I was working in um, consulting, leadership consulting. And and we were, as a family, my wife and I, our, our company point of contact, our focus, you know, was a lot of presentations and a lot of things, you know, for, for companies. And um, she, you know, we, we'd work in tandem with, you know, her on the tech side and, you know, doing video and editing and presentations. And so we were doing those things, but um, and that was the source of income. And on my own private time with my kids for years, I've been telling them stories. So my grandpa, I remember as a young kid, him telling stories and he would make up these, these stories about animals and races and all sorts of, you know, always seemed to have a carrot and, and uh, always had a, he was always scaring someone out of their shoes and taking their shoes. And I just remember that as a kid, it was always his thing. And so I remember with, with my kids, I'd read them books, but I thought, well, why don't I just, you know, create some stories? And so I started when they were, man, they must have been like four. Gideon must have been four. I think when I first started telling them stories, he's nine now. And there was a, there were some rabbits living in our back backyard. And the kids would always go to the back and they would press their nose against the window and 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 they would watch the rabbits run around. So when it came time to to create a story, I just made up a story about the hoppities and they were the the um, the uh, rabbits in the backyard. So it would always start out like this. It was many, many years ago in a land far away, deep in the heart of the Billings Heights. At the end of a long road was a cul-de-sac. And in that cul-de-sac was a yellow-brown house. Behind that house where the wood fences met was a brown trim shed with big doors. Beneath those doors was a hole. It was a rabbit hole that led to a rabbit palace. And in that palace lived five bunnies, the bunnies five, daddy bunny, mommy bunny, and three baby bunnies. Together, they were called the Hoppities. They lived together and loved together and played together and shared together. On this day, and then I'd run into a story. Now, the stories would go usually about something that happened in the, in the day. So, you know, I was Big Hopper, my wife's Mama Hopper. She's Slender Bunny in the origin stories when I meet her. 
And um, but she has this really ridiculous, ridiculous voice. It's oh my goodness, and she's just everything's frantic. And my wife is just like harmony and peace and just always in control. So it's it's funny. I um I created a it's like a Julia Child like <laughs> on steroids. But um anyway, so and of course I tried to do my voice like you know Clint Eastwood, really cool, you know. Yeah. But the the kids are hop hop, soft hop, and little hop, and in the stories. Like one day Gideon was at a at a park and some kid came down the slide and then punched him in the face for no reason, <laughs> you know? And so you're, he's dealing with his first. So I started to create at night, if things happened that were challenging in the day, I would create a story around it. So then the, you know, the, the riffraffers were the, the neighbors that were the bullies and they smoke and, you know, they steal and they do all this stuff. So they became... And so I would create all these different characters and eventually there's like 30 characters with backstories and, and, um, voices. And then they would, you know, I'd have to create new kind of territory for them. And eventually it became a, like a universe, like bunny world Mm -hmm. and then dragon world. And sometimes the worlds would collide. So anyways, but the idea behind the stories was, you know, to, to share that time with them. And and then I would use them as characters. So they it didn't take them long to go, which one am I, Dad? Am I Little Hop or Soft Hop? And I'm like, they know they're the bunnies. Right. Like, I never told them. And so um, it was a good way to, to work out things and, and to give principles and life lessons. And so that happened. And, and I, I have a friend, Zena, who's a, a screenwriter and, and um, an actress and director and just really talented. And I told her I, was, I would tell stories and... And she works with, you know, she's she's a um, a professor and teaches. And she just said, don't talk to me, just write them. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And she's like, just write them down. Like she didn't want to hear anything. And I was just kind of sharing that I tell stories. So I thought, okay, maybe I should preserve them. So I would tell them a story and then I'd write it. I would, when I was done, I'd write it down. But it would always be right before bed, late at night. And I would just make them up as I go. And sometimes it'd be 20, 25 minute long story. So when I would go back to write it, it was kind of cliff notes and it was, I I hated the process. It was just laborious and it was no fun. So then I was like, wait a minute, I'll just record them. So I started taking my phone and then recording the uh, stories. And that was, you know, a couple years in. And so now I think there's, I think we have like 140 stories. Some of them are, the longest is like a 40 minute one. And most of them land between 20, 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. And so... There's, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours. And what's cool is is we put them on their iPods. So, you know, they can listen to the stories whenever they want. So before bed, I'll tell them a story. But if I'm not home, then they can listen to bunny stories. Mm-hmm. So like my proudest moments are when I come in and they all have, you know, they all have a, a bunny story on and they're listening to it as they fall asleep. And, and the reason why is, is, you know, for one, I want to speak into their life and I want to be able, you know, to be the, I've always thought I want the last thing they hear before they go to bed is to be my voice. Mm-hmm. And now that changed, well, didn't change, but the impact of that obviously changed when, where, when I was diagnosed and, you know, when you're sitting in the doctor's office and they say, live in the present mm-hmm. and you're like, what? <laughs> and you, then you realize that, you know. You, you have, your time could be short. And so now, because I preserved those, um, right after a diagnosis, there was a, a thing called uh, Story Night that popped up on Facebook. And it was at the Montana Gallery. And it's, a, it's an, uh, an art gallery. And I saw it. And since I'd been telling stories to my kids all these years, it just interested me. So I thought I would go. And so I did. And, and the first, I didn't know what the format was. And so I just went to sit and listen. But as it was going, I realized there have been things going on in my head as I was processing being diagnosed, you know, and that I, you know, my time could be very short. And at that time, I, I thought it was possible it was weeks because we hadn't got, you know, the full, you know, the full diagnosis. And, and so I, I thought this could be weeks or, or months when it comes back, they could tell me you just have weeks to live. And so... So when I went, I had some thoughts in my head of, and, and I thought the format worked where people could just stand up and give a story. 
and so, but this is different than kids stories because it's for adults. And so I, I got up and, and, uh, gave a story that, um, really turned out to be kind of chronicling what I was going through. And, and I kind of stumbled across a, an art format that fit my skill set and my kind of life trajectory that each month I would come back and I was able to share another story. And it really became like journaling for me mm-hmm. where through story I could share. And so I would go back every month and, and share a story. And then that kind of developed, you know, me into a storyteller and um, a public speaker in that venue. Mm-hmm. And so um, through that, there was a story. The second story I ever told was uh, the first one was I Love My Yard. And then the second one was was uh, The Time Machine. And that was one that was inspired by my son. And um, I won't give it away because as a storyteller, <laughs> people can go find it and listen. But And we'll link to it. I'll link to it below. Okay. Yeah. And so The Time Machine... You know, in it, um, you know, my son inspired that. And, you know, I can give, can I give that away? I'll give it away. You go listen to it anyways. But there was a moment where he he asked me if, if I would, um, he asked me, you know, he had a heart fright, he said. And he wanted me to get in, into bed and snuggle with him. And I think he was seven at the time. So I jumped up in his bunk and he just asked me, he said, it was quiet, you know, I could hear his heart beating and you could tell he was, you know, something was going on. And he was like, Dad, do dads leave? And, you know, that's a hard question to have when you have a diagnosis that, you know. So I said, yes, son, sometimes they do. You know, my dad left when I was, when I was, you know, 21 and, and some, you know, and so that does happen. And, and he said, Dad... I'm going to build you a time machine. That way, if anything ever happens to you, then I can come back and, and visit you anytime I want. And um, from that came the story of the time machine. And not, you know, probably, you know, six months after that kind of developed into the idea of, of realizing when I would talk to other cancer patients, um, one in particular, Jill, who's now passed, you know, we talked... And she, you know, realizing there was things she would like to say mm-hmm. to maybe her husband or to her kids that realize I get to say those things in my stories all the time. And some people, you know, um, maybe there's things they would like to journal, but she wasn't somebody to journal. And um, and sometimes there's the there's things maybe you want to say, but you don't know how to say it, or maybe the other person's not able to receive it at the moment because you're you're. You're walking such dangerous ground that emotionally sometimes, you know. So I thought about the fact that I remember as we spoke, she said, well, I'm not a storyteller like you because we talked about journaling and it was too laborious for me, but I did it orally and through story. And so I realized the stories she had been telling me just about her life were powerful, but she was seeing herself as I can't stand in front of a hundred people you know, and, and tell a story, which is not uncommon because, you know, public speaking is one of the biggest fears next to like dying by being set on fire or something is public speaking. So I realized then that if people could hear the conversation we were having, the value it would have. And that if you have kids like I do that are young, I tell them bunny stories, but my boy's five. And I always had this thought when he was three, when I was diagnosed, that he might not remember me. But if I, you know, we record the, the stories I do. And so they are for an audience and it's for them. But it's also with in mind that my kids will be able to hear me speak as an adult to adults. So when they become an adult, you know, that will be preserved. And so I realized that some people don't have that, but we could sit and just have a conversation and those things could be preserved, you know. And like a time machine, people could come back and visit that and hear their voice and hear their thoughts on on their on their journey, and so out of that came the Time Machine podcast. And it's you know I sit down with with people on the journey. It's experiencing the cancer journey through the eyes of the traveler, and so uh, we uh, we get to hear, and it gives them a platform to share, you know their their life, their diagnosis, their treatment, and wherever they want to go, whatever that's important to them to talk about. 
um, you know, that's what we talk about. So that's what the Time Machine podcast is. Mm. So I, I want to get into some of the concepts that you brought up in your, your last story. Um, it, it I found it very interesting. You I, I want to preserve the story as well, but you, you had different stories um, that all had to do with ships. And uh, I find it interesting because you you were telling me how these different stories, like how, and this, this doesn't spoil the story altogether, but, um, you bought that ship to build with your, your son, but then you had a dream about a ship as well. And then you found out that the name of the ship that you were going to build with your son was Jack Kennedy's. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then at that moment when they all came together, you realized this could work as one big story. So do you, what what do you take from that? Is um is it do stories just come to you like that often or they do. Uh the I would like to say that, you know, I create them and they're, you know, but the truth is they come to me and they're given. And there's the process I've learned that um you know, thoughts and ideas will come and then I'll form them, but they do truly feel like they come and they're given and then I work them out. Mm -hmm. And so, um, when they come, they just, you know, I feel, I feel like they're, they're divinely given and I just, I navigate them and then I protect them and then I, I work them to make sure that they're formed right. right. But I feel like they're given and I'm a steward of the story. Now the stories, you know, you know, usually involved or my life but they're really not about me. I mean, and often I'll bring in, you know, stories that deal with, with other people. But the idea and the concept behind it really is to just be a mirror that people can experience, you know, this walk through death, the valley of shadow of death mm-hmm. that we're walking through. And they can kind of, you know, experience it themselves. So uh, the stories like that one, that was called Deep Water. And that was the longest story that, you know, most of my stories had been in the 12 to 15, 17 minute range. And that was almost like three stories kind of united in one. And and that was right before I was leaving to go get, you know, my transplant that was dangerous. And, you know, they actually called it off because basically I could die in the transplant. So they decided to wait. So that was a that that's a important story for me are the license plates on my wife's vehicle are deep waters. And that's the name of the, uh, of the, um, the story. And it's really, a, you know, it's, it, it talks about ships, but it's really navigating through death and through life. And so it, it deals with, with those type of concepts. And, uh, but yeah, those, that one came, came to me and, just felt like I was a steward of it. Right. Like I look back and these things were around me and and it happened like the dream and the boat. And then I just look and they just all united and just was, mm-hmm. it was there. It right. was complete. And now to talk about those concepts, like walking through the valley of death and stuff like that. Um, we were talking earlier about with the news, with the coronavirus and stuff like that, how not a lot of people are consciously aware of the fact that they're you know finite beings that we're all going to die um and now that the coronavirus is a thing people are like afraid and they're projecting that anger on people and like they want to blame people and you were you were talking about that before but can you can you explain what it was like when you first were confronted with your diagnosis did it and especially within the framework of your faith and how everything came together and your reaction to that. Yes, I could. So I, when I was 47, when I was diagnosed 18 months ago and, you know, I've kept, you know, care of myself and eat healthy and exercise and, and, you know, felt fantastic. So when I sat down for we got a blood test because I was bruising and, you know, thought it was, uh, you know, it was going to be just a simple little thing. It was really, it was surprising to hear live in the present mm-hmm. and to know that some of the things that 
some of the uh, symptoms and the things that we were dealing with, there was someone else I knew that had similar things that was given, you know, diagnosis of a couple months to live. And it's funny how you, you latch on to those things. Now, I don't remember all of it, but I remember if this is that, I might only have two months. And so when I went in to see, so when they sent the blood work to, you know, on, and then we went to see the oncologist, I walked in with, in my head, prepared that you have two months. And so when they said, you know, more life extension, a couple years is what we're, you know, hopeful. And then maybe a transplant could be the cure. I was like, yes, <laughs> you know, um, but we were going to, to uh, Fort Smith with the family. And so we'd gotten a, a buddy has a, has a place up there and we were going to go up there with, with my wife and kids. And then, you know, my, some, um, my brother-in-laws, my brothers and some, you know, we're all going to meet up there and go get on the, on the river. And so we were heading out of town and we got that diagnosis. And then we went, picked up the kids and then drove up there. And I remember we, I went to the bathroom and then I came back and they talked cancer and I missed that. And so then when I got to live in the present, I, I still was, I knew things, something was up. And so I went outside as we were leaving and my wife said, I don't want to do this alone. And um, so we, we we drove and, and we got up there and kind of got the kids settled. And then I went for a walk with her and, and you know, we got grabbed her hand and we went for a walk and I said, you know, babe, you know, what do you, what do you think? You know? And she said, well, I'm not mad. I'm not angry. I don't think, you know, God screwed us or, you know, I'm not or angry at God. She goes, I might cry, but I'm not afraid. And she said, I just wish that young Don wouldn't have prayed that prayer. And so I kind of paused for a little bit and because I wasn't quite sure what she was talking about. I said, what, what prayer is that? And she said, you know, when you would pray, Lord, put me in dangerous places, put me in places others don't want to go. So I said, oh, I remember that. <laughs> and I'd come out of 15 years of addiction, heavy, heavy, heavy addiction. And when I came out of that, I grew up in the church and I knew truth, but had traumas in my life and things that, you know, when I was introduced to alcohol and drugs, I used that to self-medicate and mm -hmm. I want to be very clear. I'm not a victim. I mean, things happened to me, but I made those choices, knew that they were not good and, you know, for me. And after 15 years of heavy addictions, you know, I came out of, you know, and that was, you know, heavy, you know, heavy duty alcoholic. And then any drug, anytime, you know, if you put multiple drugs on the table, yes, let's put that and that and that and that together and see what happens. So, you know, I was, you know, a high level drug addict and alcoholic and came out of that. And so when I did, I remember going, you know, I remember I was in jail in Los Angeles. I got arrested for, I got a DUI and I was working in a bar in Venice and uh, drove erratically on the freeway on the way home and got the ride to, to the Pokey, the Crowbomber Hotel. And, um, I remember getting on my knees and there was like a hundred guys in this, you know, holding cell and I just was done because it's like, you know, I'd been arrested 13, 14 times, always drinking, fighting, you know, like, so I wasn't like, I didn't think I was like a criminal criminal. I was just, you know, I just like to drink and, you know, often fights would ensue because I drank five, six times a week. I put myself in those environments all the time. So, um, so that was, you know, kind of you know, part of the deal. But um, I remember just getting on my knees. I'd known the truth my whole life of, and, and I had ran away. And so I did, I prayed, Lord, put me, you know, I, I was mad that I made the decision. You know, I was kind of angry that I had bought into all these lies that, that allowed me to, you know, justify doing the things I do, was doing that I knew was wrong. And so I just remember being, you know, I'm a fighter. And so I, I was mad about that going like, and so my, my thing was, Lord, put me in places, you know, like um, that others won't go. But when my wife said that, you know, I, I remember saying to her, cause I did, I prayed that, you know, and I, and I remember, I said, well, why, why would you say that? 
And she said, because it's always been that way for us. So the 10 years plus we've been married, I think 10 years at the time, um, you know, we had went through a, like, seemed like one big life crisis after another. And they were things that, you know, I'd entered into, you know, and she followed me into because I felt clearly this is what God is calling me to do. And it was one thing after another, like losing everything, you know, losing, you know, quarter million dollars in a business and having a baby and coming home to a 400 square foot renovated garage right after losing everything, living in Los Angeles and having a new baby and, and going, all right, <laughs> you know, like what a way to start a marriage, right? Because, um, you know, we were dating through the time that I, I invested in the gym. So it was one kind of crisis after another that, um, you know, it seemed to be, you know, and so she said, it's always been that way for us. And I remember again, I paused and said, well, what would the alternative be? She goes, not good. We'd be safe and we wouldn't be in the fight. We wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be able to be used. You know, we would be safe. And so I told her, I said, you know, that, that prayer was not mine. Like I prayed that, but I felt like it was God gave that to me to pray because I don't know why I was praying it. I just would. I would like, Lord, put me in dangerous places, put me where others you know, don't want to go. And now looking back and getting diagnosis, you know, we are in a very dangerous place, you know, but there's a peace that we have in the deep water because we know um, that God is sovereign and we know he's in control and that I've submitted my life to him and he can take me if he wants or, you know, or he can, if he chooses to keep me here um, longer, it doesn't matter. Like, it's his will, not mine. And like uh, Pastor Ken, my mentor, said on the last podcast I did with him, he said when he didn't know what to pray when he had his cancer diagnosis, he said to God, you choose for me. And that he had told me this and right before my diagnosis. And so when I went up to, after that walk with my wife, uh, you know, I went and talked to every one of my family members. We went for a walk, every one of them, because I realized I want to tell them everything. You know, I want to have conversations about where I'm at and what's possible and and um, what I think of them. You know, like I wanted them to know I loved them and, you know, some of the uncles I wanted to, you know, ask them things, for, you know, for my boys. Will you do this? Will you teach them to fish? Will you do, you know? So there was, there was some emotion in that, but there was also this great joy. So when we were at the cabin I would be watching my kids play there's times I had to get up and leave and go outside to cry and I didn't want my wife to see me because I didn't want her to misinterpret it I wasn't fearful I wasn't crying because I was sad I was crying because I had this such a deep joy that it was overwhelming like as I would watch my kids it was like this depth of joy that it was just so much gratitude and I was just like I love the life that God has given me I love my wife and my kids. I'm so absolutely fulfilled. Like I, if if I do die now, man, I've, you know, I am blessed beyond what I deserve. And, you know, in those moments though, you get it solidifies like what's important. All those all little things kind of go away. And the one thing for me as you know as a servant of Jesus Christ and as a follower that has submitted my life to Him after years and years of you know, rebellion and, and doing, you know, I mean, I was a, I was a wretched human. <laughs> I mean, I was, there was a re I was arrested 13, 14 times, but I should have been 10 times that. Like every, for every time I got arrested, it probably should have been another 10. But, you know, I mean, I just am very well aware of who I am on under my own devices is a very destructive, self-destructive and damaged people around me and very selfish and and, you know, about every human failing that someone could have, I maximized. And so um, to have a life, to be 10 years free of, of, you know, at that time of alcohol or drugs and now more. Um, and to have, you know, this beautiful, talented, incredible wife that's, you know, a fantastic mother and just an incredible human being. And, you know, have these beautiful kids that... I mean, I was just like, 
I don't deserve any of these things, you know. So I had this depth of, of just gratitude and, you know, I had about a 48-hour window of kind of, uh, I re- that I remember um, of sorting some things out. And really what it came down to was there came a point where I'm like, okay, my wife, she knows God. I'm, what's most important is me, for me is that, is that my, my children know the truth and, and I was like, I want to be there to model and show them what, what a man of God, you know, truly, you know, walks out in life and, and I inspired to do that and all my failings and only through the power of Jesus Christ could I even do anything good if, you know, anything good is of him and the rest is me. But um, I had that, those thoughts of going, I'd like to be here to show them and to teach them things that, you know, and I had a moment where I just felt, you know, God speak to me and it wasn't an audible voice. I feel God speaks through his word and through his spirit. And I just was very clear though. Uh, I don't need you. <laughs> and some would think that's harsh. And it was the most comforting thing it was, I realized, you know, the God who created all things that, you know, spoke all things into being that, you know, he does not need me. And and the scripture is very clear. It's the Holy Spirit that draws. And so God may use you to be a part of that, but he doesn't need you. And so, you know, I realized I didn't have to have any fear or worry that God loves my children and, and he will, he will do with them what he, he wants and take care of them. And I just hope that he, if he gives me the opportunity to be there for, on that ride, then, you know, then I'm very thankful. And if not, I'm, I don't have to fear it. Mm-hmm. And once that fear lifted of just worry of my kids, like, well, what, you know, you know, what will life be without a dad? What will it be like when they come to my funeral? I mean, you see your kids and, you know, you see them, you can, at least I do, I don't know about other people, I could imagine them at the funeral. And, you know, I've been at funerals where, you know, kids are there and they'll come up and say, you know, do you hear about my mom? And, you know, at eight years old and that's the same age and going, that child that I mourn for losing their parent now will be mine. Mm-hmm. So those moments um, that alleviated that. And so um, I don't fear death. You know, there's um, Psalms 23 says, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still water. Um, he guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I learned that when I was a child. And I would talk to Pastor Ken about it in he said to me, he was a minister for 40 years, 60, he's 89. And so even though when he wasn't in active ministry, he was still constantly counseling and working with people. And he told me this, he said, you know, I used to look at that verse and I would pray to God and say, what does that mean? The valley of the shadow of death. And he said, I feel, he goes, here's what I feel like God showed me. Because I didn't hear a voice. It wasn't an audible voice, but I feel like he, he, showed me this, that the valley of the shadow of death is life itself. It's not just a moment where people, when they hear that verse, sometimes I think if they're on their deathbed or if they're surviving like a car crash and they're in the hospital and they're in the ER, like that's, the valley of the shadow of death is life. You know, the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. It's for once to die and then the judgment. And so we live under the curse of sin and death. So from the time we come into this world, you know, death is always hovering near us. And so we're always walking through that. And it is appointed for everyone to die. So when it talks about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but I shall fear no evil. Um, I think that's uh, it's such a powerful thing to when you can when you can understand that these things are possible and will happen, but you can live free of anxiety, worry, or fear. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's something that sometimes you can only find through the testing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was in Seattle for, uh, 
the appointment with my transplant doctor and just a couple weeks ago and when I was there I sometimes get ideas for stories and so I'll just write them down and I thought you know so I this thought just kept coming to me about what I wanted to be around was the death walkers and it kept coming to me and there's that you know there's that movie the um oh it was a Sean Penn movie Dead Man Walking mm. and sometimes I've thought of that like as we come in but I was like no that doesn't fit I'm not a dead man walking that's like a guy that's walking to death and he's going to be executed it's like no no but there was something close there and I was like no no that's not it it's not dead man walking and so when I was in Seattle I started writing some stuff down I was like the death walkers and to me what a death walker is those are the people I want to surround myself with they say this they say that you are a reflection of the five people you spend the most time with and I think that's true they also say that um, you know Adversity will introduce a man to himself. And I believe that's true. What I found out is death or the prospect of death or death to a family member, death will introduce a man to his faith. And so I look to surround myself with death walkers. And what a death walker to me is, is somebody that will walk through the valley of the shadow of death without fear. Um, I have a friend, Jacob uh, Persley. He's a, a missionary in Turkey. Turkey has 80, what is it? 80 million people and there's four or 5,000 Christians roughly um, and uh, there was a mass genocide of Christians at the turn of the century and um, or I think it was maybe in the, I'm not sure if that date's right but like 100 years ago mm-hmm. and so um, it's a very small population he moved there and he moved there from Arkansas because he um he uh, said he grew up in the Bible Belt, grew up in church, and then realized one day when he heard the gospel that he didn't, he wasn't, he thought he was a Christian, but realized he wasn't. And he understood the fullness of the gospel, gave his life to God, shared that with a friend of his um, that was from Turkey. And um, he came into a relation with God and then told him, all of my ancestors, everybody, all of them are in hell. None of them knew were ever given the gospel. And he said when I, he heard that, he felt like a burden. And, like the, and, and so he moved him, him, his wife and his family, they, um, they moved to Turkey, took him a couple of years to learn language and, and, um, and then became missionaries there. And he tells the story of, of you know, there's, you know, heavy um, persecution for, for Christians. And there was two... Uh, pastors that were killed and they were you know like drugged through the streets and um he tells a story about how the wives when they were interviewed said we forgive we forgive those that did this and it was it caused like such commotion because in the culture there revenge is the way that you you know you avenge this and so he was he was telling the story about this and then you know, kind of the culture and the climate of where he lived and, and how he felt this was a great opportunity for him to be able to, you know, be in this area where nobody hears the gospel. So he's walking down the street and he said there was a, a mosque and this lady would, would you know, yell out to him in Kurdish or, or a couple languages he speaks, I forget the other. And, um, but he, um, she would yell out to him, do you believe, you know, in Muhammad, do you believe in the prophet? And he would say, no, I believe in, you know, Jesus and would, would, and she would, um, she would yell out. The first time she asked him questions, and then the next time he came through, he came through with a friend, and the friend is a minister from America. And so you would, I heard him tell the story, and Jacob, when he told the story, he told the story of walking with him, hearing this lady scream out to him, him going over, her yelling to the crowd, and people crowding around him because he doesn't believe in the prophet. And he was fearful because he has a child at home and he realizes this could go really bad where, you know, American Christians in this Muslim world and and this may, you know, people here, you know, do get killed. And he was introducing Jacob and, you know, to, to speak and was telling the story. And then when Jacob spoke, he said, so we're walking down the street and this lady yells out and so I tell her, and then she starts to yell at the, the men, you know, he doesn't believe in all, he doesn't believe in the prophet. 
And he says, what a divine moment that God ordained this to happen, that I would be here and they would ask questions. And now these people get here the gospel for the first time. Mm. And I was like, that's what a death walker is. Totally unafraid. Knows that, you know, of course, his life, you know, could end at any time. His friends that have died. But he is so sure and knows the truth and is willing to share it and willing to die for his faith. And to me, that's the, um, the kind of people I want to be around, people that are willing to die for the things they believe in, die for their family, you know, die for their faith, most importantly. To me, I believe, as a Christian, that the walk of a believer is not what you see on TV. So for the people out there listening that are not, you know, that have never really heard the gospel or have never see Christians as the guys on TV that are asking for your money. As a Christian, I will tell you, they are not part of us. <laughs> they, they are frauds. And so for those that, you know, you'll see those that will, will get on TV and ask you for your money, but they would never step into an environment where their, their life is in danger because they truly don't believe what they're saying, you know? Mm -hmm. um, they're in it for totally different reasons. They're what I would call an infiltrator. But um, I, when we go to the infusion center and we walk through, we do things, you know, that are, we film every time we go in and we recreate things, you know, that are, we call them walkout videos because we're walking into, you know, a fight for our life. And we do those to have fun and to show, because I want my kids to show that we're unafraid. And I, I want them not to be afraid of death. I want to see that there's joy um, in life, even when you're facing, you know, death. Um, so to me, I want to be surrounded by death walkers, people that are unafraid and will step into um, dangerous places um, and will put their life on the line for the things they believe and for other people. So, Well, just one last comment that I, or a concept that I kind of want to talk about, a, a, or at least a theme that I saw throughout everything that you just said there is, this idea that I think a lot of non-believers wouldn't really understand that um, when confronted with, with suffering, you don't shake your fist at God. The idea that that in suffering you can find joy. Um, there, I think that a lot of people, even non-believers, do ask in those moments of grief in, in those moments of suffering, they ask, why God, even if they don't believe? You know, they mm -hmm. the name God comes to mind. They say, if there is a God, why would they do this? But to me, that, that has always been um, God presenting himself to them. You know, just the simple question, why, why would you do this to me? If there is a God, why would I think that that is, you know, him presenting himself? So can you just expand on... Um, what what about suffering made you the person you are and how it has shaped your your faith and what people should do when they are confronted with suffering yeah well I'll try to for me i don't see you know as of now i don't feel like what we're doing other people see it as suffering um i've been you know, and other people that go through cancer are suffering at different levels. It's different for everyone. Yes, we have the weight of, of going, preparing for life after me if God, you know, doesn't spare my life, you know, if, if, if my time is short. So, you know, you go through those things. But, um, you know, I think what it comes down to is a true believer is, you know, is understanding that we're made in the image of God. And, you know, we're fallen and we're sinful and 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 if we were to get what we truly deserve that's really horrific and that's separation from god and that's punishment for the things that we've done and you know that's the whole story of the cross is that he bore our sin for us um you know there's there's that moment you know i had someone say this to me we had a conversation about about you know we had the walk and I talked about, you know, where I was. And, 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 and the person said, whose ministry background said, well, 
you know, Don, you know, it's okay to, to you know, to, to have fear and being, you know, have anxiety or whatever. Well, I'm good. And the, people didn't seem to want to believe that. They wanted to project their fear onto me. I, you know, and they would say, no, no, it's okay. And it's okay if you're fearful or, you know, you know, you're suffering and these things. And, and, and then the conversation went to, well, even Jesus, even Jesus, you know, was fearful and suffering. And when he was sweating blood in the, in the garden, and I was like, no, I think you're misunderstanding the passage. Jesus was not fearful to go to the cross. He was not sweating blood because he was fearful of man. There's martyrs throughout history that have walked, you know, to their death by fire, singing and singing while engulfed in flames. Mortals, just humans like you and me in that moment, um, fearless. And then you, but you, you're telling me you think Jesus was terrified of man and the cross. He is, he is fully God, fully man. When he said, let this cup pass from me, what Jesus was saying is, is what is in the cup is the, the cup that he was saying, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. It was the wrath of God that was in the cup. Jesus was sweating blood because he was about to take the full wrath of God that was meant for sinful humanity completely on himself. God, Jesus was not fearful of man or death. He was taking that punishment on himself. And the Bible says it pleased God to crush him. And this is where a lot of people maybe will haven't really read through Scripture and understand the relation between God and sin said he pleased God to crush his own son. That is the weight of sin. That is how holy, righteous, just God um, has to hate sin. People will say, God is love. He is, but he also hates. He must hate sin. He has to. He must hate murder if he is love. And so that's part of it. Um, so when, when the suffering... To live is Christ, to die is gain. So the time here we have is a gift, and it is short. And and um, we are to count of joy all these sufferings and the things that we may endure um, because of the gospel, because of the walk of obedience to Christ. So it's not a it's not a macho thing at all. It's like I'm very weak. Um, the Bible says his power is made perfect in our weakness. So the strength that we have through this comes from him, not of our own. And it's not macho. It's not like, who. I have this assurance and this absolute deeply embedded peace because I know who God is. I know who I'm in relation to him. And, um, and that I've read, you know, that I have um, what Jesus did on the cross has put me in right relation with God and that I'm obedient and willing to, to live for him and willing to die for him. And knowing that in those moments of fear in the deep water, when Jesus calmed the storm, it's when, when I'm feeling the deep water and the fear, I realize that um, it's God who is sovereign and is in control and I submit my life to him. And, and there's a peace that, that comes that is passes all understanding and, and there's no way to describe to someone unless they're walking in that peace mm -hmm. so um, you know I don't I don't see suffering as a I think it's an honor if if God calls you to a position where you may suffer to glorify his name um, but it's it it's it's nothing to do with ourselves there's one misconception that I that drives me crazy when when people will talk about people that are, they're like, this great man of God, you know, this guy, he's such a great man of God. And like, there is no great men of God. There are none. There are, are weak, broken sinners that are, you know, that left to their own devices do things I like me, that... That if they submit themselves and are obedient to the calling of God in their life, he can use to do great things through you. 
but in spite of you. It has nothing to do with you. It's only his power through you. His power is made perfect in your weakness. And that's why I feel like we have a really good relationship because I bring a lot of weakness, like immense amounts of failure and weakness. And um, he, he brings, you know, um, his power through that if I submit to him. So anything, you know, so the suffering, um, to glorify the suffering uh, Christian, I think is is the wrong, you know, if someone does that is wrong. It's if you are a believer and, and God, there are trials and things you go through, it's, um, and you, you get this joy and peace because you know who God is and he is guiding you and giving you that peace, um, you know, it should always direct back to, to the cross. It should always direct back to Jesus and what he did and, and, you know, and the power of the Holy Spirit that moves through us is all, all is, is him. So, um, I hope that kind of answers it. Yeah. Yeah. And is that, um, when, when you were asking for challenges in life, do you think that part of that was because you, you knew that you deserved what was coming and then you also wanted to be molded by that, by the struggle or? Well, for one, I think when I said, you mean the prayer? Yeah. For one, I believe God gave that to me, but yes, part of me was, I was mad. I was angry that I knew the truth I'd grown up in the church and I had been given truth and foundational truth and I knew it. And when I was doing the things I was doing, the excess and the drugs and the, and the, um, the violence and all the things for 15 years, you know, I made those choices and I slowly, as I did them more and more, I distanced myself, you know, from, but I always, I mean, I could be sitting with someone. I mean, I remember being, you know, in a three day binging party and a pile of cocaine on the, table and someone bring up God mm-hmm. and I would go oh like I know the truth like I always knew the truth like I was running away but I looked around I remember thinking to myself these people may not know the foundational truth of the gospel that I do know and I can't tell them mm-hmm. because I'm high as a kite <laughs> and I'm like there is but there was something in me that knew I knew the truth mm-hmm. and so even in those darkest moments I felt like um like I, I knew the truth. So when I came out of that and I thought of all the damage and all of the, I mean, you know, I, um, I was blasphemous. You know, I would, I mean, I purposely dressed up as Jesus on Halloween to, to blaspheme. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was like, I knew what I was doing. I was like, so, you know, I looked back at those things that made me mad. And, you know, growing up, you know, and, and having, um, just growing up in a culture of, of violence that, you know, I ended up, you know, having to fight. You had to fight. Otherwise, you would just get beat up all the time. So, you know, I, I, I had to learn to fight. And so I think part of the way that God made me as a fighter and, and as, you know, someone that when that in his providence, I there was no mis- he was not unaware of the path. And um, he allowed me to go and to make those choices. But I think he was forming me in those that when I came out, I was like, I want to fight. Like I'm mad. Like I, and the fight in the, is different though. The fight for a believer is not go, you know, punch someone in the mouth. It's like, it's going, are you willing, the way you fight is that you're willing to die to yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, you know, the true Christian walk is not this prosperity. Like you do this and God gives you this. And, and I declare this and I get whatever, you know, I just declare this and prosperity, Joel Osteen, everything's happy. <laughs> All that, you know, that's just not the truth of the gospel. And, it, you know, those guys are, they're liars. That's why they're, you know, that's why they, you know, have the private jets and, you know, um, you know, that's not the truth. When when you actually come, what, what you're promised is, you know, when you give your life to Christ, he says, you know, pick up your cross and follow me. You know, you're promised salvation and a cross to die on. That's the Christian walk. You die to yourself. Your life is not your own. You're on assignment from that point on to do what, what God directs you to do. And it's often things you don't want to do. <laughs> and it's things that are, are you are not able to do without his power. And they're sometimes scary. Um, that's the walk of a, a believer is to submit your life totally. Your life's not your own. And um, that you die to yourself. You are a servant of Jesus Christ. You're a slave like, I'm a slave to Christ Jesus. Like, my, my life is not my own. I willingly am a slave to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't dictate, you know, um, 
you know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, that is the truth. And, and I'm just, my goal is to be able to hear the voice of God, not audibly, but, you know, Jesus said, my, you know, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep will know my voice. Like, I, I wanted to, when I was in those dark times, it got to a point where I never, I felt like I was so far from God, like I couldn't hear. But there was still those faithful moments where he would, you know, call out to me and I knew, you know. Um, and he, why he allowed me to, to live a lifestyle that was so blatantly opposed and I was thumbing my nose at God and I was, you know, blaspheming all the time. And then, you know, he still loved and I don't know why he chose to, to, you know, to bring me out of that and to give me all the gifts I have now. So I believe my life now is a gift. Like I'm not, you know, every, every moment's a gift. My family's a gift. Um, I don't, you know, God doesn't owe me anything. <laughs> you know, there's this misconception that we are God, kind of our, our own God. And, you know, we'll follow along with this God thing if I get what I want. And if nothing, you know, if, if nothing harms me, then we're good, you know, and, and, and that's not a true, you know, that's not the, the, the true gospel. And um, the gospel truth is that we are to die to ourselves and submit ourselves to him. And, um, and if there's suffering in there, then it's, we do that with joy because we know, um, we know who God is and we know that we're, we know that we know what he did on the cross and what that, what's been given to us and we submit our life to him. That's mm -hmm. just it. It's the simple, that simple. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Do you want to, do you want to just tell people where they can find you if they want to listen to your podcast, listen to your show, and then they can give you any support? Sure. DonCorcoran.com. And there you will find uh, the stories. Um, and, and then uh, the Time Machine podcast is the, the stories we talked about where, where I walk. Um, and those are great because the, those are, I love those because I get to just sit and listen. That's 90%, you know, uh, people sharing their cancer journey. And there's such wisdom and value in hearing people that are, you know, you know, faced and confronted with those things um, you get to hear directly from them so those are the areas the Time Machine podcast and, um, and you can find us at Point of Contact is my company so doncorkin.com Point of Contact Time Machine and that is uh, that is how you find me Hey everyone I'd like to thank you if you made it this far um, hope you really enjoyed that interview every time Don speaks I seem to take something from it he's pretty pretty wise so yeah thank you and I, I would like to say a little bit of what Don shared with me after we turned off the mic he was he was talking about when Kobe died and just about the coronavirus and stuff like that and he was saying that even he who grew up you know watching him never he never got to go see a game even though we worked near the center and everything like that but he was saying that the reason why like all these mothers who had never cared about basketball before and all that all these families were actually devastated when Kobe died was because people like that kind of serve as like a mirror for themselves they see when they these little kids die or when when big stars with like wealth and everything everything that they possibly could have in the world when they die it's kind of like a realization or a mirror and you're able to see yourselves in that and and it's just like you see how vulnerable we are and we we got into a discussion about like how it's not really it's not really safe to put your faith into something that is finite um and that's that's the mistake that a lot of us make here we put our we put our faith into into wealth we put our faith into someone a partner we put our faith into the earth but the truth is is that we live in a finite universe it's it's gonna end um and yeah i think i think what you see through dawn is the realization and finding 
humility and joy in that, you know, when you, when you go in nature and realize how <laughs> there's kind of like this peace in knowing how small you are, I guess. But yeah, not to be too dismal in all of this, I, th I think that it is, it is important to find joy in all of this. But the truth is, is that we are finite beings. Um, but yeah, just share love with your family and stuff like that and, and your friends and enjoy every moment. Thank you. Um, I, do, I do have some more interviews planned within the next few weeks, but with the coronavirus and everything like that, with school shutting down, it's who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? I don't know where I'll be next week, so thank you.